The views and discussion expressed on this program do not necessarily represent those of the hosts of the program. WMKV, Maple Knoll Communities, WLHS, the Lakota Local School District, or staff and management. The information and advice presented are educational in nature and not intended to be taken as specific legal, accounting, or other professional advice. Always consult with your own legal, accounting, or other professional before making any investment. Welcome to Real Life Real Estate Investing, a show to help you gain financial freedom by investing in real estate. Brought to you by the Real Estate Investors Association of Cincinnati and the Ohio Real Estate Investors Association. You're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing on WMKV, WLHS, and the Maple Knoll Radio Network. And now your host, Vena Jones-Cox. Good afternoon. I am Vena Jones-Cox, and this is Real Life Real Estate Investing, your nation's public radio source for the news, information, tips, techniques, and strategies you need to be successful in your real estate investing business. Here on Real Life Real Estate, we try to deep dig deeper into strategies, then you might get a chance to hear about at your real estate association or at conferences and seminars and things like that. And, you know, webinars, all those things that are limited by not being on public radio and having to generate lots of money for sales. That's the good thing about being on public radio is we don't sell stuff. And that gives us uh, both the time and the freedom to um, get into some things that, while they might be of interest to listeners, aren't, you know, huge money makers for the producers of the show. And today is a wonderful example of that sort of strategy. Uh, we're going to talk today about collecting what you are owed as a private lender, a note buyer, um, anyone who is involved in mortgages. Uh, we've had many discussions here on Real Life Real Estate over the years, and you can you can always listen to us, uh, to those uh, through our podcast, uh, which you can get to by going to our Facebook page, uh, facebook.com slash real life real estate investing, uh, about buying notes and evaluating notes and finding people who sell notes and, and all of that front end stuff. But we have never had a discussion about what happens after that. <laughs> what you, you got the note. What what then? How do, <laughs> how do you actually how do you actually make it make money? And that is going to be our topic of discussion today. Uh, obviously, this applies equally well to those of you who are interested in in buying defaulted notes, which are automatically going to need some management collection procedures. Those of you who are buying performing notes, which may at some point become defaulted notes, and you folks who are making or want to make hard money loans or private loans that... Uh, you know, always, always carry that risk. Uh, I have not one but two guests today by phone. Sabrina Allen has 18 years of collections and mortgage experience. She has worked the debt portfolios for several uh, national financial institutions 
and also individual note investors. She has a bunch of experience with loan modifications and, of course, the things that happen when loan modifications don't work, like foreclosures and short sales and cash for keys. Uh, so she's she's the negotiator. She's got a lot of ability to sort of understand what's going on with borrowers and build rapport with them uh, for the benefit of the lenders. Uh, Susie Berg uh, has overseen the strategic direction for loss mitigation of a hedge fund that had mortgage assets in 36 states in Puerto Rico. I know you're, you're thinking, man, I can't even collect my rent from my tenant up the street. And she's collecting in 36 states in Puerto Rico. Uh, she's an active note investor and uh, uses all of her knowledge about credit reports and bankruptcy and pay histories and servicing notes to sort of figure out what direction is a note going. Uh, they are joining me by phone from opposite ends of the country, Northern Ohio and California. Welcome, Susie and Sabrina. Thank you for having us. <laughs> yes, and this is this is a little bit of an interesting situation for us here on the radio because normally you guys would be sitting across from me, and I'd ask a question, the two of you would look at each other, and you'd sort of signal with your body language which one was going to answer the question, and we don't have that advantage uh, in this particular situation, uh, so we are, we are going to do the best we can to uh, make sure that everything is real clear to the listeners here. Now, I want to start out with the reason you guys are on this call together is that although you do live in different parts of the country, you have a business that you do together, so let, let's talk about a little, a little bit about what that what that business is. Absolutely. So Sabrina and I co-founded The Art of Notes, which is a business focused on helping uh, retail note buyers understand how to do their day-to-day asset management after they buy the notes. So we work with investors to teach them how to board a loan, um, how to work it out with the borrower, and then once borrowers maybe get reinstated, how to keep that note keep on paying. And it's we can't reinstate a borrower. We work with them on how we might be able to exit that note, whether via a short sale, deed in lieu, or ultimately a foreclosure. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that's a um, that's an interesting little niche. I'm guessing there aren't there aren't a ton of people in the country who work with with smaller investors to sort to, to kind of work. And when I say smaller, I mean, some, I know some of your clients will buy notes a hundred at a pop, but that's not the, you know, 10,000 that a big, a big bank might have uh, that, that, that might be in some stage of default. Uh, and I know you guys also have a business yourself in buying, I believe it's, it's primarily defaulted first mortgages. Is that correct? Correct. First and second. First and second. So, mm-hmm. so, so you kind of know the business from from all the various ends. And the thing, the thing that seems to go unstated, and and as I said in the introduction, many times it's because of just just sheer time constraints. But you know, if you go to a, a real estate investors association meeting or you go to a seminar and there's a note speaker there, it's all about acquiring the notes. It's all about it's all about where do you get them and how do you pay for them and and how much money are you going to make and so on and nothing is really said about what happens after the note is acquired. So it's a passive business, I guess, as long as everything's going well. It's the right, and when you're buying non-performing <laughs> notes, it's typically not going very well at all. Exactly, <laughs> so. exactly, and even and, and many times, even um, even if a performing note 
is is being sold cheaply it's it's what it's what they call like semi performing or pseudo for like like the payments come in usually eventually right <laughs> so 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 that's a that's a that's a situation that could turn south at any time and uh, i can't tell you how many folks i've worked with that are uh, they are originating the notes they're the private lenders and for one reason or another, you know, maybe it was a problem with the borrower or maybe they just didn't do their due diligence on the borrower, their notes turn bad. And, and that's, you know, that's, that's all that's the money out of their pocket uh, that they're now not getting paid back. And they have no idea what to do about it. I mean, they, they call and they're like, well, do I just foreclose? <laughs> they, they, have, they have no clue what the next step is. So let's sort of talk about whether you've bought a non-performing loan on purpose or whether you've, you had what you thought was a performing loan and it's not, what is the very first step? Payment, payments due on the first, late on the 10th, it's the 11th. Now what? I'll take that. I'll take that question. <laughs> um, you, you basically, um, you send a reminder notice in the mail um, reminding them that their payment is late. Um, and you also then, you make a phone call as a friendly reminder um, and you never know what you're going to get on the other end of the telephone. Um, you have to remember you're not a bank, and but you still need to be compliant when you make that initial phone call. Um, you can't call like you're their best friend, but you also have to remain professional. Mm-hmm. When you buy a loan that's subperforming, you should call them when, when they're 10 days past due. Because if it's subperforming and it's 10 days, if you let them go 30 days, that that 10 days is going to turn into 30 and it's going to turn from 30 to 60 to 90 to 120 and then you're going to have a problem on your hands. Mm-hmm. So it's just one of those things that you call with just a formal introduction and let them know that you are now um, the owner of their note and mortgage. Um, verify that they got their goodbye letter from whoever you purchased the loan from. Verify that they got the holo letter and, and let them know where they should be sending their payments to, which is the new servicer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Hopefully that will clean up any problems that you may have. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now you even have, Sabrina, you even have a little a little spiel that you do that sounds exactly like like it was a bank calling uh, about this is a call to collect a debt. <laughs> is that? Is that... Um, it, it is actually um, it's a mini. It's called a mini Miranda. And anyone that you, anytime that you make a phone call as the lender, you actually should make that statement. And I'll, and I'll do it because I, I have it memorized and I can say it in my sleep. When you're engaging with a borrower, you should make a statement such as this. And the phone call should open as, hi, is this Mrs. Brown? And you identify and you verify their information. And once you've verified their information, you say to them, this phone call is an attempt to collect a debt. Any information obtained should be used for that purpose. Your call may be monitored and recorded for quality and training purposes. Mm-hmm. And then you kind of go on with your information after you've completed the mini Miranda with them. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you, you document that you did the mini Miranda with them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, again, that's one of the things that, um, you know, let's say, let's say I am in the position of being a private lender. I didn't buy a note. I know this guy, right? We sat down and we had coffee. And... And he convinced me that I, I should I should make this loan and, and, and now he's he's late and we're we're about to not be friends anymore <laughs> because he's not paying me. Do I still need to make that kind of disclosure even or, or do I can I call up and say, Hey Joe, where's my payment? Um, technically you should still give him the mini Miranda at least once. 
any communication that you give to him, you should have it on your on your written communication, because we have very sophisticated borrowers in in the United States, and every time that you break the law and you are not complying with FDCPA, which is Fair Debt Collection Practice Act, you can be sued. So your friend who is getting ready to become your enemy because they can't pay you, you're opening yourself up to liability. Mm-hmm. And that piece of information right there was worth every listener who's listening right now, who's a note buyer or a private lender, taking the time out to listen to the show today. Because I have never heard anyone say that. And I think I think most of the folks out there who are buying notes or making loans don't even know that that is required by law. So you've done your, there's, there's the RESPA goodbye letter, the RESPA hello letter, you've done your mini Miranda. It's the 11th, you make the phone call, of course the borrower's probably going to say, oh, don't worry about it, or they're going to tell you a sad story. Now it's the first of the next month. What happens next? Still no payment. Well, well then you, you send a more aggressive letter. Um, but just because I made a phone call at 10 days, do not think that I have not made a phone call from 10 days to, to 31 days because I'm calling them every seven days trying to make contact with them or trying to get some type of arrangement. Mm-hmm. And that is not harassment. If they make a commitment to you, you document it. If they don't follow through with their commitment, that's when you call them. If they made a commitment, no, you don't call them back. Mm-hmm. If, you, if they don't make a commitment and they're unsure, you make a follow-up call with that borrower because if you don't stay on top of this and you've purchased 10 loans and you have 10 people just telling you they're going to get back to you, now your, your IRA or the money that you've utilized for your investment is just, just money sitting there and it's not earning anything at all. Mm-hmm. So you have to stay on top of your investment in order to continue to make money. And if you don't, if you want to just give money away, don't follow up with your borrowers and just let that money sit there. Mm-hmm. Just, just, just as with real estate, the worst thing you can do with a defaulted loan is ignore it day after day. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't get more valuable or more likely to make you money <laughs> as, as the days pass and pass and pass and pass. Uh, you're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing. We're talking today about what happens after you've bought that note or made that loan. And I'm sure there are tons of questions out there from for listeners. And today, because we have guests on both of our lines, we're going to need to take those questions via email. So if you have a question about asset management, collecting, foreclosure, bankruptcy in, in the case of these uh, these debts, Please send us an email. The address is askvena at gmail.com. That's A-S-K-V-E-N-A at gmail.com. And we'll be back right after this. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Vena Jones-Cox. My guests today are Susie Berg and Saprina Allen. Uh, they have the company The Art of Notes, which helps uh, folks who are out there buying notes to... Um, do something with it to make them make money instead of just sitting there week after week after week and not getting paid despite the promises of the borrowers. Um, Do you guys ever get borrowers who just flat out tell you, I'm not paying you? Like, like I don't want to make an arrangement. No, I'm just come get my house. 
Yeah, I mean, that, <laughs> you know, it's, I, it's, a, it's a very good question. I remember one of my very first notes, I called the borrower, got him on the phone. He's like, I don't want the house. And I said, well, you can find a deed over to us. He goes, you're kidding. Is this a joke? I'm like, no, I'm totally serious. We'll forget your debt and sign a deed over to us. He's like, that's awesome. And sure, and I mean, the house is in great shape. He signed the deed over and went on with his life. I mean, he, he was done, but he, before we owned that note, he could never get in touch with the bank to let them know what his intent was. And they were just sending him, you know, automated collection notices. Well, and, you know, that, that does beg, beg the question. And I know that Saprina in particular has a lot of uh, experience with some, some, of the, some of the actual institutional lenders. Individual investors who own notes tend to get better results on on the average than banks do with the exact same notes like like the bank had the note they couldn't get anywhere and then they sell it and an individual investor ends up with it and they either get the deed or they do some kind of workout why is that why 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 can't the big institutions seem to do what the little investors can do um one of the reasons is that we were um well the, the deed in lieu taking a deed in lieu and you're taking a property back and you're a bank um, unless it's just an immaculate house, it's just something that we, we don't want the property. We, we are not in the business as a financial institution to take a property back. It's a liability. It's not an asset. Um, it beca- it's, it's only an asset when we're getting money. So it was, it's easier to sell the loan. It's easier to take a settlement on the loan versus actually taking the actual structure back. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's one of the on to add on to Saprina, when it comes to you know short sales and loan mods, um, the bank you know has very strict quarterly reporting requirements with the FDIC, or in the case where it's community bank, with I can't remember their overseeing entity. But they, you know, if if they look like they're writing loan mods that are decreasing the debt significantly, that's going to have their in- an impact on their rating. So they don't have the flexibility that we have. Um, and I think they also Saprina probably has experience with this don't have the time or the manpower. There's so many files on their desk that they really, really don't have the time to to individually tailor a solution for that borrower. So between all those three factors that we discussed, it's really the individual investor has a lot more time and doesn't have the regulatory scheme that banks have to deal with. Mm-hmm. So in many ways, from the from the borrower's perspective, having the loan sold to at least an educated individual note buyers or small company that buys notes is probably the best thing that ever happened to them. Yeah, I mean, I think so. I think, you know, Sabrina and I um, tend to approach, I think, notes differently than some investors. We we don't look at the business as a way to get at the house. We look at it as a way to resolve something with the borrower. And worst case scenario, we have to foreclose. Um, but we, you know, we, we, want, we want borrowers to stay in their home. Um, and really work something out and put our investors in a position where they're getting cash flow every month. And then occasionally maybe we have to take a house back and resell it. But like Sabrina said, it's it's ultimately a liability, um, a bigger liability than a note is, mm-hmm. both financially and legally. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let, let's, let's continue the walk down the path here. Tenth um, rolled around, you made the call, there was maybe some kind of promise or some kind of story or whatever. And, and, and now we've gotten to 30 days behind. At what point do the do the calls start coming accompanied with, by the way, we're going to foreclose on your house if you don't work something out here? 
Okay. Well, first that um, that that statement of we're going to foreclose. You have to be very careful when you make that statement because you never can make a statement to a borrower on something you actually aren't going to do. You can use the word possibility, and these are the things that can happen. But if you don't intend on foreclosing or at least sending the file out for legal, don't ever make that threat to a borrower. You, you, can't, you just can't do that. But, you know, you can, you can let them know at 60 days past due that you can actually refer that file out um, for legal, and a legal demand can go out. Um, on the, on that account, mm-hmm. and that's when you can get something on a on attorney's letterhead, and now it's out of your hands. Mm-hmm. So you can actually say that it can go. It's going to be referred to your legal department for review for foreclosure, and sometimes you have to just create urgency in the conversation to kind of ch- change the direction to put a fire under the borrower. Mm-hmm. So it's just it's just the changing the tone of the conversation. And sometimes even sending an internal breach letter, um, basically letting them know that their $3,000 past due on their account and they need to cure it within the next 30 days, um, sometimes gets them motivated to give you a call to say, can we get a loan modification? Is there something we can do? We don't have the money. It just changes the tone and the direction of the, of the, of the, um, the borrower and the conversation with the borrower. Mm-hmm. What what do you find to be the more common thing that folks just have buried their head in the sand and will not contact you or that you are in contact with them and they are promising things that are then not materializing? I would say it's about 50-50. You, you have some borrowers who will just kind of just make promise after promise after promise who are just professional um, people who know how to beat the system and then you have the other people who are humiliated, who are embarrassed, who life happened to them, and they they just don't know what to do. And when they don't know what to do, they just hide. And sometimes it takes someone to knock on their door, use a door knocking service, and you know, telling them that their lender really wants to help them, and it's not the big bank anymore. And sometimes they're relieved when you send a door knocking service to their door. Um, to get on the phone with them, to talk to them, to tell them they're here to help you and not to hurt you. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, that that actually fits in very, very closely with a question we just got via email at askvina at gmail.com. Uh, this one is from JC, who's in Las Vegas. He says, what is your opinion of contacting a borrower at their place of job or business assuming you have not otherwise been able to reach them and they haven't specifically requested that you not do so? And should such contact attempts be held, handled any differently than trying to reach them at their home? And if so, how? Um, you can send them. Um, you can send them mail at work if they say not to. You can't do it anymore. Uh, or you call them at work. And until they tell you that you can't call them at work legally, you can call them at work if you have a number for their place of employment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know. But as soon as they tell you you can't call me at work. You terminate that call, but you ask them when is a good time for them to re- for you to be able to reach them. Mm-hmm. And I assume there's some common sense in here about you know not telling the secretary who answers the phone who you are and why you're calling. <laughs> that, that, yeah, and that I think and that's, that's third party disclosure. And that's the truth for if when someone you know Trina spoke earlier about verifying information with the borrower. 
you know, someone's living with their mom and their mom picks up the phone, you can't disclose that information to just outright and say, hey, I'm Katrina, I'm collecting your debt. You have to verify certain things with that individual to confirm that you're actually speaking to the person who owns the debt. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, I, I know this is this probably varies a little bit depending on the borrower and the story and where the property is and what kind of shape you think it's in and, and all of that sort of thing. And I, and I'm really I'm really drawing on you guys's you know decades of ex- combined experience here to to answer a question that probably doesn't have a a definite in each case answer, but at what point do you throw up your hands and say the only thing that's going to make these people pay is actually filing a foreclosure on them or the only they're not going to pay and and they're not going to turn over the property so we're going to have to file a foreclosure at what point do you make that decision? Um, go ahead, Sabrina. <laughs> um, when one of the one of the things is if the house is vacant and there's no longer anyone occupying the home and you can't find a good phone number and they're just ghosts, that's a for sure thing. You just plow away to foreclosure because they've abandoned it and they've cut all ties. So that's a no brainer. You just go to foreclosure. Mm-hmm. Um, that's that's an easy answer um but then you just get to the point where um if you can't get their financials if you can't get them to respond but you know they're still there you've looked at their credit report they're not paying anything um you can't find them a place of employment and they won't allow you to help them sometimes it's just you have to make a business decision it's not personal it's a business decision that you have to foreclose mm-hmm. after you foreclose it's not you're not at the end of the road where you can't help them. We're then at the end of that. If you have some options to give them cash for keys to at least still get them out um, and assist them in moving, you can still help them even if you foreclose. You still can't get angry. You can't take this personal, but this is just something that you had to do. But you don't say this is it. I'm not going to help these people. But this is just the way you get them out. Mm-hmm. And that's that's a that's a a really interesting statement that I've I've heard from other folks who are in the note business that it is very important that you not let the fact that you're angry at them or that they cussed at you on the phone or that they are making stupid decisions that you would never make keep you <laughs> from in the future maybe trying to work things out. In other words, you don't, you don't foreclose because you're mad. Right. <laughs> so, and I think you'll also find when you foreclose or start the foreclosure process, we've had borrowers a week before, two weeks before, a day before, who've never reared their head all of a sudden say, hey, 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 what can I do? I want to save my house. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, on a case-by-case basis, we determine um, what we're going to do. A lot of times when a borrower calls us a week before foreclosure, probably not going to engage in a loan mod discussion. Uh, but we might engage in a deed and lose discussion mm-hmm. so that we can avoid an eviction post foreclosure. Mm-hmm. Is there any time when you go through the whole process and you get to the point where foreclosure would be the natural thing to do and you decide not to foreclose anyway? You decide just, you know, this isn't getting paid and I'm not foreclosing? Yeah, um, we've had a, a couple of instances, and typically when we decide to do that, they're homes that. We've bought in a pool of loans, and they're really, we've just kind of taken them. They've been thrown in there. We have no choice. Um, we've had a couple meth houses, 
and typically we won't foreclose on them and we'll actually reconvey the mortgage because we don't want any liability that has to do with an abandoned house. Mm-hmm. So there are there are um, instances like that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So at, at some point, even if you bought a pool of loans on a you know forty eight hours notice to bid, there's there's some point at which you are going to in fact evaluate the property itself and make a decision right. about whether. <laughs> I mean, I've I've seen properties in Cincinnati that people have bought notes on that I looked at it and I said I don't know what you paid for the note, but the foreclosure is going to cost you more than that house is worth. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so you know, in a case like that, we'll sometimes look. You know. I foreclosed on something in Inkster, um, Michigan, right outside of Detroit, and the foreclosure was expensive. But at the end of the day, um, it, w- it was—it's a great rental property, so I kept it um, because I wasn't going to recover on the sale. But I knew that there was going to be some amount of return on the on the rental. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, very good. We need to take another quick break. I'm talking today to Sabrina Allen and Susie Berg about. What happens after you bought that defaulted note or you bought that performing note that turned defaulted or you made that hard money loan that is now in default? We can talk both about the legal issues as well as the practical ways to handle this. Uh, if you have any questions, you're going to email them in. Askvina at gmail.com is the address. It's A-S-K-V like in Victor, E-N-A at gmail.com. We'll be back right after this. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. Talking today to Susie Berg and Sabrina Allen, who are note buyers and also own a business called The Art of Notes, where they help other folks who are uh, note buyers who are (laughs) trying to work out notes and um, get things reperforming. And if that doesn't work, have something else positive happen. You can ask any questions that you might have about this topic by sending an email to askvina at gmail.com. Here's a question from Rob in Greenville, South Carolina. He says, can these ladies please tell me how they address borrowers who are stonewalling them? I finally pulled the trigger and bought a defaulted second mortgage. And this is what the, this is how my first conversation with the borrower went. I want to keep my home. I don't have any money. I don't want to give you information about my situations or situation or finances. I did not go know where to go from there. <laughs> Sabrina has the best answers for these. <laughs> um, my my first thing is I would request financials, and I would request that they execute a forty five hundred six T. If they're telling you that they don't have any money, the forty five hundred six T tells a story. You know at least what they filed on their tax returns, and you can get a, you can get an itemized summary of their um, their tax returns. And if they are getting some type of government um, assistance or um, Social Security or VA benefits, you would request um, for them to sign a release for you to, to contact those entities to see what their monthly benefits are if they don't have an award letter. But the 4506T would actually tell the story without them not even realizing what they're signing. Mm-hmm. And the 4506T is an IRS form that can be downloaded, I assume, at irs.gov or uh, yes. something similar to that. Now, uh, Rob says yes. Rob says that his, uh, his borrower said, I don't want to give you any information about my situation or finances. So, I mean, this guy is... This borrower is just totally 
I want I want my house, but I don't want to tell you anything. I don't want to work out anything, and I'm broke. So, what what would your next step be if they said, "Well, I'm not filling out the forty five oh six t"? Well, I think my there might be. Oh. Go ahead, Susie. Okay, I was just gonna say I think you know before I think even before addressing the four hundred five the what's the phone number again, Sabrina? <laughs> 45060. <laughs> 45060. <laughs> well, anyway, I think there's a bigger issue that the borrower is not even facing reality. Um, so, you know, I think there could be two situations. One, the borrower doesn't trust anyone, and maybe as a, you know, they, they see this brand new entity, small, sounds like a small time guy. If there isn't any trust that this is the person who actually um, owns the note, I don't know if that's the case, um, but we've run into situations like that where it might just be a case of, the new owner having to establish a rapport or some trust with the um, with the borrower, and that might consist of something like sending a letter, introducing him, him or herself, along with a copy of the assignment, the note, the deed of trust, um, and then following up with a phone call. And I think having a conversation with the borrower, okay, you're broke, um, but you want to keep the house, we need to figure something out, and I can't figure something out and help you unless you fill out X, Y, and Z form. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And at, at what point during the stonewalling process do you just say, okay, well, it's apparently going to take some further action to get this guy's attention? Because a lot of these people who've, who, have, who, who have defaulted seconds haven't paid in five or six years. I mean, this isn't, right. this isn't some new situation. This is, you know, they got threatening letters from their bank for a while and then they stopped. If he has the ability to pull credit or if he has his loan with the servicer to pull credit, I would look at the credit report, and I would see what else is not being paid. I would really like to know what the status of the first mortgage is um, to be able to see where the borrower is with the first and if the first is current, um, if there's any equity in the home. I would start doing some assessment on the overall asset itself to make a decision on how do I move forward. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because this is another situation where sometimes foreclosure is not your answer. Uh, it may, but it may be. Mm -hmm. uh, as as an attention getting device, as opposed to, uh, I mean, I've seen the, I've seen these loans where the the house is worth two hundred and the first is one ninety eight, right, and the second is fifty five, and there's always the question in those cases about well, if I'm if I'm in second position and I and I take it all the way through to foreclosure, what am I really accomplishing? So, uh, in a in a case of a a borrower who just is not ready to give any information is is a foreclose is actually filing a foreclosure spending the money to do that ever just a thing to say yeah i'm serious yeah you just don't go all the way through you just started just um just started to get their attention but you can you can cancel a foreclosure at any time mm -hmm. you don't have to go all the way to the end and if you use an attorney that charges you a la carte, you you can um, control how much you pay or how much you spend. And is it worth that, you know, that gamble to at least start the foreclosure action to get their attention and let them know you're serious? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, any other listeners with questions? Uh, you've only got about 10 more minutes to ask them. So askvina at gmail.com is the email address. Um, let's, let's talk about, um, uh, so we, we, we sort of talked about the process and at what point in the process do, does this happen or this happen or this happen, but you guys, your, your ultimate goal in your business, as you said at the beginning, 
is not to foreclose and it's not to get the property through something like a deed in lieu. It's just to get paid. It's it's a it's a loan modification right. <laughs> or or possibly in some situations a short sale. Um, let's talk about the loan modification. Do you already know before you contact a buyer what sort of loan modification you are looking to set up? What the what the rate would be? The principal would be? The payments would be? Um, no. <laughs> So <laughs> really, we have two very different answers here. <laughs> so, I mean, I'm going to say it from my point of view, and Sabrina, you can just jump in. I mean, a lot of times we don't know what the borrower's financial situation is. Mm-hmm. Um, so until we review their financials, we can't figure out um, what what their payment's going to be or what their interest, interest rate's going to be. And you know, each one of our investor funds has different requirements in terms of the return they want to see mm-hmm. so we'll a lot of a lot of times have our calculations fit um, within a certain range of LTV um, so I guess in respect to like the potential structure we have an idea what it's going to be but until we know the borrower's financial situation we really can't you know make a we don't, we're not entering with 100% certainty mm-hmm. Sabrina um, and then also when you are doing a loan mod you never, ever do a loan mod without reviewing financials because you could get yourself into trouble later if you start foreclosure again or if you start foreclosure and you set your borrower up for failure and they, they go in front of a judge pleading their case that they're foreclosing against me and I couldn't afford the loan modification that they put me into. So it's always wise to, to set the parameters of a loan modification based off of affordability of your borrower, not always what the, what what you want just because of the arrearages um, that you would have never seen because you didn't own the loan at the time anyways. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. you have to keep that in mind as well. So so uh, what what is, uh, under what, uh, if they go to the judge and say, I got set up for failure, are they doing that under some regulation or are they just looking for a judge to feel sorry for them and undo your foreclosure? Well, I think now they would be doing it under the Dodd-Frank. You know, banks are required to have a net present value test to decide whether or not to grant the modification. Mm-hmm. Um, and the borrower potentially says, you know, hey, they didn't use this net present value. They just decided they wanted this much to pay. Then, you know, the, then the judge could say, okay, I, w- I want to see what you did and what your test is. Um, but if you did, now, in order to – you don't have to d- disclose your – assumptions unless you're rejecting an application. So in the case where where you've accepted the loan modification but it's on some ridiculous terms, a judge could require you to show your records in terms of how you made made those assumptions. But typically those would not have to be disclosed unless they went to a judge. Okay. What what documents are you requiring from a borrower before you will set this up? I mean do they just have to say, well look, I make ten thousand dollars a month or do they have to prove those things in some way? Yes, proof is in the pudding. Um, so we require you know, the previous year's tax return, um, checking it uh, three months of check, uh, statements from all their checking accounts. Um, if they've recently been employed, uh, employment letter, an offer letter, uh, six months of pay stubs. Katrina, what else am I missing here? Um, utilities. Um, monthly yeah, expenses. all their liabilities. Okay. Um, and, also, and a hardship pension, and a hardship letter. Okay. 
Okay, so so just like the banks want a hardship letter, you want one as well. Now, once mm-hmm. you have once have you have required them to jump through some of these hoops about you know I need these documents before we can talk about how we can work this out, and you're ready to make them an offer. You're ready to say this this is what we can do. How does that happen? Is there paperwork involved? Is that does something get filed at the courthouse? I mean, once we've made the loan modification, how is that documented? We will usually, well, it's, I mean, it depends. Typically, we'll send them a letter, we, and we typically don't do permanent loan mods until they. We'll give them a trial loan mod mm-hmm. for a period of three to six months, mm-hmm. um, sometimes a year to make sure that they can perform to those terms. So what we'll basically do is we will send them a letter so we're not really making any true modifications to the terms of the loan and say, you know, if you perform X, Y, and Z, your loan will be modified as follows, basically under the same terms, please acknowledge and sign this, and we'll put it in their file. Okay. Uh, I have a question here from Paula, who lives in Akron, Ohio. She says, I was a little surprised to hear Susie refer to the Dodd-Frank Act. I had understood that note buyers were not subject to the Dodd-Frank Act because the loan was already originated before we bought it. So, you know, what I would caution is I think there's a lot up in the air about the Dodd-Frank Act. And to the extent that you're able to follow it, it's going to work in your favor. Um, because judges in many states are very um, consumer-friendly, and even if it doesn't apply to a private lender, um, a retail investor, they, they will make it apply to you. We've, we've run into that um, in a lot of situations. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, yeah, in New York. Does that yeah. does, does that does that mean, because I, I think where Paula has gotten confused here is in the difference between I have bought a defaulted note and could be liable for what that note already says versus what you said, which was qualifying someone for what is basically a change in the terms of the loan. Correct. Yeah, so she would not be liable based on the terms of the note that she bought. Okay. It would be how she would have calculated any loan modification. Okay. Um. I have a question here from Michael, who is in San Antonio, Texas. He says, the thing that scares me most about buying notes is I am absolutely convinced that if I foreclose on a buyer, especially in a state like Texas, where the foreclosure is fairly short, he's going to declare bankruptcy the day before the sale, and I'm going to get nothing. <laughs> so I think, um, I mean, bankruptcy, you know, the thing I say is bankruptcy is nothing to be afraid of. It's a pain in the butt, but um, I think that, so a borrower can file two types of bankruptcy, a Chapter 7 or Chapter 13. So one, I'm not going to get into all the details, but Chapter 7 eliminates all their debt. To get through the Chapter 7 process, or filing bankruptcy does not mean you cannot foreclose. Filing bankruptcy will just relieve a borrower of the obligation to pay the debt. And even if they're relieved of that obligation, in order to keep their house, they still have to reinstate the loan. So if they can't do that, you, you're just delaying the foreclosure process. It usually takes about 90 days. So 90 days later, you would be able to foreclose on that house. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's more of a time, more of a time issue than anything with the Chapter Seven. Um, chapter Thirteen would mean that they're on a payment plan to pay all their arrearages. So if he were to complete that plan, the borrower, then. Um, the note buyer would receive cash flow payments every month. And then if they're not paying, there's certain avenues they can take through the bankruptcy um, court to get 
to get to go to the foreclosure sale, but bankruptcy does not eliminate the ability to foreclose on a piece of property. Mm-hmm. Yes, you need to remember, Michael, that you always have the property, bottom line. <laughs> if, if the borrower doesn't, isn't going to pay the debt, hopefully the property will, because there's still the mortgage, not just the note. Um, okay, so we have about three minutes left, and I would like uh, each of you, and we'll start with Susie, to share your favorite silly story from your business, because everyone has one. Landlords have one. Retailers have one. You guys have to have stories that just, when you think about them, they just kind of make you chuckle in dealing with these borrowers yeah i think i have one um it was my one of my very first door knocks where i um, i flew out to indiana um and door knocked a borrower and convinced her to do deed and lose she she was the borrower she was living with her husband who kind of reminded me of willie nelson and i sat there in the house and he was a little bit of an explosive personality and at one point he's like i want to show you my ferret and I was like, what? He goes, my ferrets. I'm going to go get olive oil and Popeye. And I'm going to bring them down, and you're going to need to pet my ferrets. So I've never <laughs> seen a ferret before in my life. And he brings them down, and sure enough, I'm petting olive oil and Popeye and getting the Dean and Lou all at the same time. So it, it is definitely a silly story. That, that sounds like a Saturday Night Live skit. <laughs> yeah. You must pet my ferrets, yeah. All right, Sabrina. What's your favorite silly borrower story? I won't say it's silly, but it's funny. When you have borrower, I had a borrower threatening me because I wasn't kissing her behind and she was behind on her payments. And she says, if you don't leave me alone, I'm going to call the FCC on you. (laughs) And, um, you know, you're trying to keep a straight face that Mm -hmm. she was, you know, threatening to to turn me in. To the Federal Communications Commission, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, and she was just a thorn in my side, but she was an older lady. And, um, that was like, that was just one of my borrowers that she, she haunted me till the day I left. Uh, Uh She's just one of those ones. I can still hear her voice now if I think about her. Well, Um, clearly you were not communicating with her in the way in which she wanted and who would regulate that other than the FCC. I mean, that just makes um, perfect sense. She would leave messages on my voicemail. She's like, Sabrina, I know you're there. Pick up that phone right now. <laughs> this is so-and-so. Pick up that phone. I know you're there. Do you hear me? <laughs> and she'll say, am I being recorded? Okay, I'm hanging up. Bye. <laughs> Yeah, there's just some times that you gotta laugh. Yeah, you have to. Yeah, I uh, I uh, have a partner who's a note buyer and um, was uh, um, talking with a borrower who was doing the whole "I'm so broke," you, you know, I, I lost my job, I just have I have no money, I'm I'm destitute, and he went to her Facebook page, which was an open page, like she didn't even have it. So only her friends could look at it. And she was bragging about this huge settlement she'd just gotten at work, like $50,000. And the loan amount was like eleven. Um, So, <laughs> yeah, there's always, wow. yeah, there's always, there's always some story or another out there. And, uh, you know, I appreciate you guys sharing yours. And I appreciate you sharing all of your expertise. My guests today, in case you didn't catch it, were Saprina Allen and Susie Berg. And uh, once again, the company is uh, the Art of Notes. And again, ladies, we very much appreciate all the detailed information you've given us today. Look forward to seeing you here on Real Life Real Estate again. And we will be back next week with more information 
to put you on the path to financial independence through real estate investing. Until then, happy investing. <music>